0: appreciate that. Well, uh, we finished Philippians last week, and so uh, we're going to be starting a a new uh, mini-series before we start our next um, longer series, and so Jesus and the Psalms. We're going to look at some of the Messianic Psalms together over the next few weeks here, and uh, looking forward to to this study together. We are uh, jumping right in with Psalm 110, and uh, Psalm 110, um, a song that you are probably uh, familiar with, uh, even if you don't know it, at least in terms of uh, some of the content. And uh, the reason for that is because um, verse one of the psalm is the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. Um, As we think about this psalm, verse 4 receives almost an entire chapter of explanatory commentary in the book of Hebrews. And so um, it is a, a psalm that has great significance, uh, in the New Testament and um, certainly was one that um, the Apostles and even the prophets as well uh recognized as, as being incredibly significant uh, to our understanding of, of Jesus and the Messiah and so Psalm 110 uh, we're going to read the whole Psalm and uh, if you follow along I'll read it aloud Um, It's going to be up on the screen here as well, but uh, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. The ending there, verse 7, he shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to unpack this psalm together and look at the truth that you have provided in your word, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for what's ahead. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives, that you would grant understanding the text of your, of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the significance in our own lives. And and Father, that we would compare our thoughts about who you are to what your word says. Father, that we would compare our lives and the choices that we make and the way that we live to your instructions from your word. Father, we ask that today The power of your word would change our lives to be more like Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, this was uh, one of those areas where Jesus himself actually quoted uh, this psalm, and the account um, will probably, you'll probably remember as we put it up here, but uh, um, as we we go through this together, um, well, thought we put it up here let's see maybe i won't put it up here but i will read it for you (laughs) but uh matthew 22 uh you'll remember the account here matthew 22 beginning of verse 41 says while the pharisees were gathered together jesus asked them saying what think ye of christ whose son is he all right so pharisees are together jesus is asking the question and he's asking them what they think of the christ and, and whose son he is so they answer, the son of David, Jesus, he said unto him, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now let, let's pause there. What's, what's being quoted there? Well, that's verse one, right? Verse one here of Psalm 110.1. Question then comes up, if, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46 there of that same chapter says, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither darest any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Okay, so he, he silenced the Pharisees with that question. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, let's, let's take a moment and let's, let's break down the meaning of, of this verse here in Psalm 110, verse 1. So the Lord, and you'll notice there all caps, So that's Yahweh, so the Lord said unto my Lord, lowercase, that's Adonai, okay? So that's the sovereign one. And and so the the question maybe comes up, who who is speaking to whom there and and who is the one actually writing this? Well, we know who wrote the Psalm, right? It's a Psalm of who? David, right? Psalm of David. and, you know, sometimes in these psalms where we see a title up at the top, a mask of so-and-so or whatever, uh, we, we don't always know if, if, if that notation was necessarily original, right? Sometimes we wonder, okay, was that something that was added? In other words, those notations under the psalm headings um, were, were um, not necessarily in the original manuscripts, right? Somebody may have written that down. Well, in this case, we have very clearly written here a psalm of David. And then we have New Testament attestation over and over again. This is a psalm of David, even from the words of Christ himself. And so we, we have no doubt about where this, where this psalm come, comes from or who its author is. Uh, this is most certainly a psalm of, of David. And so David is writing here, the Lord said unto my Lord. So let's, let's break that down. The Lord Yahweh here. And so we're, we're speaking here of dialogue, Yahweh said, okay, so, and even to make it perhaps more special, we're talking about not just the Word of God, but we're talking about inter-Trinitarian dialogue. We have God the Father speaking to my Lord God the Son here. And so God the Father speaking to God the Son and says to him, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. You know, this This is uh, one of those glimpses into the workings of the Trinity, where we see God the Father speaking to God the Son. And it, it's, uh, I'll just be honest, it's one of those moments where uh, it, it gives me pause personally, right? Because it, it, it's almost as though you are listening in on a conversation. Now, obviously, God has revealed it to us. He wants us to know this. He wants us to listen in to what was going on. And, and yet, even in that moment, there is a certain, I would say, perhaps hesitancy on my part that um, kind of a bit like, do I belong here? <laughs> do, do, I, do, I, do I belong hearing this? as God the Father is speaking to God the Son, uh, I don't know, maybe you remember those conversations perhaps as a child, where you were overhearing your parents talking and at times you said, should I really know this? Or should I really be hearing that? Uh, Maybe in the workplace, when uh, the boss has their door open and the big supervisor comes in and you hear something going on in there and you say, not sure if I'm supposed to hear that part. I I can tell you for me personally, I get that little bit of uneasiness of, boy, am I supposed to hear this part? Just the idea of the nature of God the Father speaking to God the Son, and yet he has revealed it, and he wants us to hear it. He wants us to know what was being said. And, And so what was the description here? Sit thou at my right hand. A place of honor, a, a place of distinction, one in which uh, we have uh, someone sitting uh, next, next, to, next to God the Father, of course, this being God the Son, Jesus Christ. As we, as we think about this, um, what an incredib- incredible example here. Maybe we, as we think about Jesus, what is his posture toward his father here? What what is he thinking as as his father gives him this instruction? Perhaps something like Joshua five fourteen maybe comes to mind here. And he said, "Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, right, the army of the Lord, am I now come?" And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship, and said unto him. What saith my Lord unto his servant? Right, that, that idea of, of, of humility in his approach. And, and so as, as the instruction is given here in verse 1, sit thou at my right hand. We, what is this? This is authority and power being conferred to Jesus Christ himself. It, it, is, it is an example of God saying to Jesus, God the Father saying to Jesus, that he has bestowed upon him power, that he has authority, that he has might. And, and we see this in the references to, to who, who um, Jesus is. Let's make a few comparisons. Right? Now, this was what tripped up the Pharisees. Uh, remember the, the beginning here, the Lord said unto my Lord, as Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he, he is asking them, in essence... Uh, isn't, isn't the Christ, isn't the Messiah the son of David? Whose son is he? Right? And, and so, makes sense, right? Uh, but here's a son of David, and yet David refers to him as his Lord, his authority, his leader. And, and, and so, in, in the, the midst of that context, the, that creates a challenge. Normally, sons don't get called authority figures by their fathers. Right? That, that didn't work. Uh, that didn't happen in that day. The, the father doesn't bow to the son. The son bows to the father. And so that was the challenge, because here's David the father saying, this Messiah, this one, is my Lord. And, and so the, the fact of the matter comes to this Uh, this simple idea that is fleshed out of the New Testament, and Acts 2.34 speaks to it. This one is greater than David. Acts 2.34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. Here's the idea. David didn't ascend to the heavens, but Jesus did. And so this is one who is greater than David. In fact, that's not all. This is one who is greater than angels. Hebrews 1.13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The angels didn't get this. David didn't get this. Christ got this. Jesus got this. See, God exalted Jesus while man rejected him. Acts 5 verse 30 and 31 says the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted at his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Man tore him down. God lifted him up. It's Jesus. It is him who is Savior An intercessor reigns on high, and we see that there in verse 31, right? God exalts him to be at the right hand. He is the one who offers forgiveness of sins. Romans 8, 34, as we consider this verse says, "'Who is he that condemneth? "'It is Christ that died, yea, rather, "'that is risen again, "'who is even at the right hand of God, "'who also maketh intercession for us, and so here's the one, Jesus, who has, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, who has been placed in that position of authority and of power to make intercession for us, the children of God, to go before God the Father on our behalf. You know, the, the whole idea there is that Jesus has finished his work of redemption. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, And uh, that distinction is made here in Hebrews 10, verse 11, says, and the priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But but compared to the priest, here's Jesus in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. See, God told him to. God the Father told him to. And he obeyed. The priests—they have to keep standing up; they keep offering sacrifices. Jesus offered his once, and then he sat down. The work was done. And the time will come, as this verse says, Hebrews ten thirteen, and what we saw here in Psalm one ten verse one, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. You know, the enemies will be made, in essence, a stool for his feet. As 1 Corinthians 15.25 puts it, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is, is death, at the end there. And just to show you a couple examples of this, this would have been a, an example that would have been well understood in that day. Um, this idea of an enemy being put under your feet uh, this is a, this is a um, stone carving here, uh, a, a relief. Um, many people think that this was Han, Hanu, uh, Hanunu, a king who ruled Gaza around the 8th century. Um, but some aren't entirely sure. But we do know who, um, and, and by the way, the, the, the king I'm referring to is the one on the ground. And uh, you can probably see him down here. See that head there? And uh, there's his body. And there's a big old foot sitting right there on his neck. Now, people debate who that one is laying on the ground, but uh, everyone agrees. The one who's standing up there on top of him, that's uh, tiglath Pilzer. He ruled um, from 745 to 727 B.C. And he had this relief card. He's the Syrian king, and uh, we actually see reference to him um, in, in places in Scripture. But here's the... Here's the uh, Description here of the Assyrian king. He, he, he had this relief carved, why? To show his enemies what happens when you try to stand up against it. And what's he doing? He's, he's got his foot down on his neck, right? The, the whole idea here of, of making his enemies his footstool. So David would have been um, before this, about 300 years before this, um, around 1000 BC. Give you another example. So, enemy here being made a footstool or standing on them. Uh, Another figure here. This is a throne. Uh, This would have been a a figure of uh, Hera, uh, goddess on a throne, and um, this would have dated around 5th century BC. Uh, But what you see at the bottom is a little stool. It's a footstool, and Throne rooms in that time, kings had a place to prop their feet. They didn't just sit them on the ground. They propped their feet up. And what was it? It It's a sign of authority. It was a sign of strength. It was a sign of power. Um, You are on the throne. You are ruling. And so in the, the midst of this, we have this one verse here in Psalm 110, verse 1, which is declaring Jesus as king. And the one who will reign over his enemies, who will be put under his feet, who, who will be as a footstool in the midst of his reign. And the New Testament references it over and over and over again, more than any other verse in the Old Testament. Significant verse here. See, that's who Jesus is. He is the one who reigns. He is the king. As we think of this, verse, verse 2 um, here, we're going to kind of jump to um, Psalm 110, verse 2, and uh, yes. let's see where I pull that for you. I don't have that up here for you, but you can follow along in your scripture. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And, and so verse 2, we now have the reference, this ongoing reference of, of this king. Now that that description there right the the rod of thy strength when we're talking about a king that's the scepter right that's the scepter and and so here is the lord who is wielding the scepter he is the king who has been given the seat of authority and power and and as we we think about that his his rule, his responsibility, his authority has been, um, been, we, we could say, um, given the blessing, right? In it, it, its place or position. It, it's an idea of those who, who are under him and around him need to respond in obedience. And not only those who love him, but those who are his, his enemies, they need to respond in obedience. And, and it, it really gives us this idea of, of enemies who, who they themselves will, um, will come under his authority. See the second part of that, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. This, this one will rule over the enemies by the power that he has. Reminds us perhaps of Revelation seventeen fourteen. these shall make war with the lamb, the lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. So we have enemies here that will be overcome by the Lord of lords and king of kings, the Messiah, Jesus himself. But then there's also a group of people who are with him as well. And Psalm 110 verse three refers to those people who are with him. Uh, let's, let's look uh, here. Sorry, I don't have that there. But Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. This, this verse here, verse 3, uh, is, is one of those that, um, that, as I was reading it, you may have different words written down there uh, because this is one of those verses that almost all the versions use different words in describing it. But the fact is, all of them are saying the same thing or the same idea. And so we're going to work together to get to that. So, so as, as we look through this very beginning, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Who's that? That is those who love the Lord, those who are in obedience, the ones who are um, described here as the faithful. They will... Uh, in the day of that power, in other words, they will willingly go and join the Lord Jesus. Judges 5-2 maybe gives us an idea of this type of thing, as uh, Deborah here, um, in the Song of Deborah, uh, we see here, right, the, the people willingly offered themselves, right, so, so those who are faithful of the Lord willingly offer themselves to him, that's the concept or the idea, and, and so it's really almost the idea of, of being like free will offerings. God, we give ourselves to you. War wars going on. God, we give ourselves to you. We, we wish to be faithful in your calling. And, of course, that reminds us of Romans 12.1, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know so so in the midst of this, we have, we have those who belong to the Lord, the faithful ones who, who are willing to give themselves to the Lord as free will offerings. God take my life, take my body, take it, use it for your glory, and, uh, and, and whatever comes, it's offered before you. The battle ahead, no problem. We will, we will fight for your glory, we will stand up with you and as, as we see that, it, it goes on. It's described as the day of your power, All right? The day of might, the day of force of arms, the, the battle. Zechariah 4.6 uses the same language here. He answered and spake unto me, saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What, what's that, might and power? Well, that's the same as the day of your power there, the idea of battle or fighting. and so. Um, This is the same thing that we'll see later in verse five here of Psalm 110, the day of your wrath. And it's upon the holy mountains, So you may see it that way or perhaps better in the beauties of holiness. And and with that, what is that? Well, that's the holy array, that's the holy array. Um, The armies lined up, we see this um, same Idea here, as we as we think about uh, the battles or the armies of the Lord. The end of that verse, of course, refers to this dew that is there early in the morning. Except this dew doesn't go away. And Hosea six four gives us reference to that idea. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it glow- goeth away. But in this case, in Psalm one ten. It doesn't. It stays there. And then the last part here, referring to the Messiah, has to do with those who are faithful, who are willing to give their own lives for him. Reminds us here of Judges 5.18. Zebulun and Naphtali were people that jeopardized uh, their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. So here, the faithful ones are a part of that army, the same one who is likely uh, is described here in Revelation twelve eleven, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by their sword of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. You know, all of this together points to the idea of Jesus as King over all. One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is the way in which it poetically pulls together so many different concepts and ideas from Scripture into just a tight packing of verses. And, and so as we, as we think about Jesus and his role as king, right? he, he is the one who is overall, whose, whose enemies will be made his foot, footstool. He is the one who was, was ordered, as, as God said it, to exercise this power, to sit down at his right hand. He is the one who exercises the scepter of a king demonstrating the strength and rod of his might over his enemies. And, and he is the one who the faithful flock to to serve in verse 3 as in recognition of how wonderful he is, willing to even give their own lives for him for the sake of the battle. That's Jesus' as king. Right? That's Jesus' as king. But Jesus isn't just the king he's also the priest and verse 4 switches gears to refer to Jesus as the priest verse 4 says the following the Lord hath sworn and will not repent thou art a priest forever under the order of Melchizedek now this is perhaps uh, remember at the beginning Yahweh said now here we have Yahweh uh, offering up an oath, an oath. This is even stronger, perhaps, than what was stated before. And and so here it is a divine oath, uh, one in which Hebrews 6, 17 notes, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. All right. so reference here to that oath in, in, um, in verse four. And as we think of that, that promise, that pledge here is that uh, strengthened even further that, that God will not change his mind now, as we think of the priesthood and Eli, Eli was a Levite, if you remember, Eli was a Levite, one of the things that God had set apart the Levites for a particular role in a particular place, First uh, Samuel 2, verse 30, wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. What, what's going on here? The, the priests had abused their office, and, and God is saying, that doesn't work, right? That, that's not okay. And, and if you do not do well, that will be taken from you. And so we, we see uh, the end of the Levitical priesthood taking place. And we do not have the Levitical priests today. But, but rather, Jesus is not of the priesthood of the Levites. He is of the order of Melchizedek, verse 4 says. Now, you may or may not remember Melchizedek. Melchizedek is all the way back, Genesis 14. And um, he is the king of Salem. Let's, let's look here, verse 18. Right, he's the king of Salem. He brought forth the bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Um, Verse 19 says he blessed him. and said, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into the hand and he gave him tithes of all. And so what happened? Abraham offers up a tithe to Melchizedek, king of Salem, who is also a priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek serves as king and priest. Now that, that may seem unusual to you, and, and the reason for that is that is unusual because Levites couldn't do that, and kings couldn't do that. They couldn't become priests. Um, in, in fact, as we, as we consider this, one of, the, one of the things here we see about this king of Melchizedek, and uh, Hebrews 7.2 refers to it, uh, that was so unique about him, Abraham gave him a tenth part of all, uh, being by interpretation king of righteousness, that, that, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Remember this, this king of Salem, name meaning king of peace, uh, this is foreshadowing here of that this one who will be the prince of peace is going to be out of this order of the priesthood of Melchizedek out of the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites. And, and so with that, um, maybe you remember the occasion. You know, in, in the Old Testament Israel, kings didn't get to be priests. You, you weren't allowed to do priestly duties. If you were a priest, you weren't the king. Uh, that was how it worked. And we had in 2 Chronicles 26, a, a king who uh, thought very highly of himself and, and tried to take on some priestly duties for himself. Uh, that's King Uzziah. King Uzziah here in 2 uh, Chronicles 26, verse 16, says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Verse 17, but Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And it goes on, and they withstood... King Uzziah and said to him, "'It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, "'but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, "'who are consecrated to burn incense. "'Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, "'and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God.'" So what happened to Uzziah 19? He was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. What happened? Uzziah overstepped his role. He tried to burn incense. He tried to take on priestly duties. He was rebuked. He was rebuked, that's not for you. That is, as Uriah said, it's for the sons of Aaron. It's for the Levites. It's for us to do. And so he was basically kicked out virtually by force, 80 priests standing there in front of him. You know, it's uh, it's it's uh, you, you can almost imagine the group there. You know, arms crossed. You're not going past. You know, I mean, that's that's the idea. I mean, you're you're not getting in here. And so, what happened? A priest stood up to a king and said, "This isn't your role. Go back to your palace." God recognized the the right response by the priest, and Uzziah received leprosy in response. You know, but. As Hebrews 5, 6 puts it, Jesus wasn't of the, a priest of the order of the Levites. He was of the order of Melchizedek. And perhaps what's most special about that is he's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is the eternal priest who provides eternal salvation for all who believe. Hebrews 5, 9 says being made perfect he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him you know normally priests live and they die they don't last forever but here's one out of the order of melchizedek who does last forever so we have the king priest here jesus is the king priest pretty amazing when you think about that that's a role that melchizedek had and of his order, we have Jesus. And in terms of our uh, biblical knowledge, uh, we don't know of anyone else of that order. We've not been instructed of anyone else. See, the end of this Psalm reminds us of the simple fact that the king is victorious. So we have these last three verses here, verses five through seven, Psalm 110, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Verse seven, he shall drink of the broken the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. And so here is this great king-priest in the midst of a battle and one in which we see that he is victoriously pursuing what's ahead. You know, this, this sounds very much like Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he sat upon it. it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he shall judge and make war. Verse 14 goes on And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It goes on in verse 19 here of Revelation 19. And I saw a beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and verse 21 now, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. See, that the psalm that we have just read together leaves us of the picture of Jesus, this king-priest, who is victorious in battle. And following up on the victory, he is uh, there by the brook, like Gideon, uh, like Gideon, Judges 8.4, Gideon came to Jordan, passed over he and 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. There's an aspect here in the midst of, of the humanity of Christ in which there is a desire to stop even for water and yet he pursues the battle. So let's, let's ask this question. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever considered this idea of the battle between good versus evil, the go- battle between God versus Satan, right? As you think about that process, where do you set the odds, so to speak, It's at 60-40. God's 60%. He's got 60% strength. and Satan's at 40. It's at 70-30. 80-20. Where do you set the odds? You know, the, the fact is that we serve a sovereign God. And we, we know the end from the beginning. We know what will happen. And it's set... Not so much just simply because of the fact that God is eternal, he is, right? He knows what's gonna happen, he knows the future, he knows all those things, but beyond that, it's set because of who God is. God is wholly other, there is nothing like him. And so he is is so different from anything else, whether that be Satan or fallen angels, his angels, his children. He is so different from anything else. In fact, he is totally, completely not dependent upon anyone or anything else. None of it has to be there. We've mentioned this recently, I think even on Wednesday night, the idea that that God himself is love. And he, he was loved before we ever existed. Right? We, he didn't somehow change. And he's merciful. And he was merciful before we ever existed. And he was all-powerful. He was all-powerful before every, we ever existed. He was omniscient before we ever existed. And it wasn't like somehow we had to appear in order for him to gain these attributes. God is. Right? He just is these things. He is wholly other. He is wholly unique. And, and as we think about his sovereignty, look, Satan doesn't have a chance. The, there is no doubt about the outcome of the battle. God is all-powerful. It, it's not as though, you know, the, the underdog wins in the football game, and you say, that's why we play the games, Right? <laughs> that's not what this is, right? It's, it's, it's not underdog versus uh, the, the, the one who's favored. So the, the game's over. You could almost say there's hardly no game at all. Because God speaks and it's done. He is that powerful. He is sovereign over all. There is no chance that Satan has. See, the, the victory is sure. And if you're like me, perhaps there are moments in your life where you forget that. Or things seem out of control or too big or, or whatever it is. Maybe at times you can feel like hope is lost or, oh no, it's just so terrible. What, you know, whatever is going on, it just seems too big at the moment. And yet we forget that we have a sovereign God who is overall, who we can trust, who loves us. And there is nothing that will come that will catch him by surprise. There is no problem or issue that is too big for him to handle. And we're his children. I don't know if you have ever considered areas of your life that you somehow think in your mind that you have control over? Uh, I mean, the moment you start thinking about what God and His sovereignty means, how big He is and how powerful He is, I mean, He made everything, you know, just speaking and it's there. It's out of nothing. It's, it's there. We can do nothing like that, nothing close to that. And We, we move stuff around. God makes it. And as you as you think about who God is and His power and His might and how much He knows, I mean the the depths of His sovereignty are incomprehensible. I think we cannot ever plumb the depths of our God. I mean, I, you you just start thinking about all the things that He controls, and and you you start you know, okay, He knows the number of hairs on my head, and then you get smaller and. And he knows, you know, knows the breath that I take and the life and all of that comes from him. And he knows when the sparrow falls from the sky. And so he, he knows about birds and the animals. And then you start thinking about this world that he made and all the parts that are made up of. And the, all the little atoms and you get smaller and smaller and all of these things. And he knows all of that. And he upholds all of that. He's involved in all of that. I mean, he, he is active in all of that. And, and then, you know, you multiply it, and you get bigger, and you start thinking, well, not just here, but in the whole solar system, in the galaxy, in the universe, and it just gets bigger, and not only there, but he knows everything in heaven that's going on. He knows everything in hell that's going on. I mean, He, he knows everything. what a big God. And and then somewhere in these moments, in in the midst of a sovereign God, a king priest who will be victorious, where the battle is set, it is finished, it is done. You know, it's going to happen, but it's over before it began. And, And in the midst of that, we still have these moments in our lives where we think somehow, you know what happens is utterly dependent upon me, (laughs) right? And we don't trust God in those moments. And if you're like me, those moments come too often. But it's, it's passages like this, where we have just caught a glimpse, I would say not only In regard to God's sovereignty and the natural word but beyond that even the way in which God works in weaving together the very word of God on display for us today all of these verses from all these places that we looked at that all fit together perfectly according to God's perfect plan and and we we sit there and and we we ask questions like well can I really trust him I trust him here? Is he going to look after me here? Is it going to be okay? God's never lost one of his children. He's never lost one of his children. God's never failed to be there for one of his children. He loves them beyond what I can understand or comprehend. He looks after us and and yet somehow I still think I'm in control, right? Or it's dependent upon me. It's not. What do we do? We trust a sovereign God and we rely upon him and we seek to be faithful to him as his children, knowing that he knows the end from the beginning and when he gives us instructions, we follow it because he knows what's best. You see, that's, that's our God. That's who he is. And so wh- whatever these areas that we think are our own or belong to us, it's baloney. What do we do? We just trust our God. We rely upon him. I don't know if today there are areas where you maybe are still clinging to the idea that you're in charge. You're not but maybe you're still clinging to that idea. Are you willing to just trust God with those areas and say, I, God, I'm just going to leave it in your hands. You know what's going on here. God, help me to be faithful in the next step that you've called me to. Help me to be faithful in the next thing you would have me to do. Help me to serve you. Help me to honor you. Father, knowing that you are the king priest, the forever king priest, the one who will Never end, who will never cease to be that king priest, the one I can trust, the one I can rely upon, who will always be there. You see, that's our Jesus. And that's what Psalm 110 was talking back all the way in the time of David. The same psalm that's reaffirmed time and time again throughout the New Testament. The whole Bible points to the truths we've discussed today. Jesus truly is the King Priest. Will you bow before him? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge set before us today. Father, these are not minor things. We know that what your word says about who you are. Uh, as, as we consider it, it, it we, we're dealing with depths beyond our comprehension. And Lord, we, we seek to plumb those depths. We seek to mine those riches. Lord, we, we seek to pull out these truths and learn more about who you are. Father, we know enough right now to live in light of your promises, to live in light of, Father, the oaths that you have made, the words you have said. Father, we know that we can trust you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond to you in humility, trusting a God who is over all. Father, help us to respond in obedience. We pray, Lord, that you would take every aspect of our life, that you'd use it for your glory. Father, I pray that as we're bowing our heads today, there be areas where we are still clinging on to our lives, claiming them for ourselves, that you would bring it before us in these moments right now. Father, where there be sin, where we are rebelling against you, show it to us, Lord. We might confess it and forsake it right now, even in these moments. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work during this time, convicting, instructing. Heavenly Father, we thank you For who you are, we're thankful that you don't need us. We're thankful that you don't need anyone or anything else, Father. It truly is the greatest privilege to be called your children, and we pray this today in Jesus' name, Amen.